Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. Support for The Observatory and Design Observer comes from AIGA, Professional Association for Design. AIGA's mission is to advance design as a professional craft, a strategic advantage, and a vital cultural force. For over 100 years, generations of designers have come together to help each other, their clients, and their communities to make an impact in the world. Visit us at AIGA.org. So usually after school lets out, people go on summer holiday and things quiet down a bit, but not so much this year in the United States with the Republican and now the Democratic National Conventions. There's even been some design news. Donald Trump has blessed us with uh, the brief, fleeting, meteoric uh, streak across the sky of a logo for him and his running mate. It unveiled itself one day as a T seemingly penetrating a P. It was quickly animated to make the uh, penetration explicit. And then without a word, suddenly it was just withdrawn from the scene. With no explanation. Well, no, no, no explanation. It was just sort of yeah. like, forget that right. ever happened. Sorry. Um, and, you know, these days uh, when logos are launched, uh, Clients at this point understand they have to have nerves of steel to ride out the criticism that it will inevitably ensue. Mr. Trump and uh, his running mate, Mr. Pence, had no such uh, patience. The minute it didn't play to the crowd, uh, they changed the subject, which in fact is the way that um, Mr. Trump tends to treat the electorate, period. If he's giving a speech, if it's not playing well, you know, within this minute, he'll just come up with some non sequitur. The fact that Trump and Pence each have five letters in their name, A, and the fact that Trump ends with a P and Pence begins with a P would both seem <laughs> to lend themselves to solutions that would be pretty simple, oh. that wouldn't require, like, the oh. metaphor of some sexual innuendo. <laughs> Am I wrong? Well, now, now you're getting... Um rational about the whole thing, which I, I think know, is probably I know. the wrong approach. It, 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 you know, indeed, I mean, when I count the letters uh, when in this sort of situation, I see that T-R-U-M-P has the same letters as P-E-N-C-E, five letters each. You want to line them up perfectly and justify them left and right. But of course, that means they would both be the same size. And um, I think size matters in this election, at least in the Republican side of the slate. And um, no way is uh, the head of the ticket going to handle someone being as big as him. And so somehow that uh, alignment has to be uh, disabused. The, the replacement logo is a pretty meek version with Trump. Bigger pence centered underneath it, smaller, and let's just move on and not think about it too much. Now, Clinton named her running mate, uh, Senator from Virginia, Tim Kaine, this week. You know, you do wonder what would have happened if Clinton had picked uh, Hickenlooper, if P Clinton had picked someone with a long name. Do you think that the design of the logo of the running mate factors into the consideration of the future governance of our country? For God's sakes, no, I don't think it, I don't think it does, and obviously it shouldn't. There's, there's sort of this um, sentimental kind of idea of... Um, of dreamy lovers kind of writing their names down on, you know, in their uh, junior high school, um, you know, geometry textbooks where they're writing, you know. Well, you could yeah. say that, but Kane did call them uh, soulmates and stuff. <laughs> so it is actually a bit of a, yeah, you know, but it's, it's like a... Mr. and Mrs. Michael 
and Jessica Helfand Beirut, Mr. You know, Mrs. <laughs> Jessica Beirut, Miss, Mr. and Mrs. Jessica Beirut invites you. You know, so, tongues will yeah, wag, exactly. Michael. Yeah, tongues I know, will I know. Wag. One can always dream, but I mean, I think there's something there's something nice where there's the hard C of Clinton and the K of Kane. It was nice that it kind of all held together uh, so well typographically, and that was in fact observed uh, on uh, on Twitter by at least one commenter. What was it you heard that you told me earlier that the Republican National Convention, what, could you please, for our listeners, share what the hybrid uh, assessment was? On Twitter, Frank Lesser, who I think used to be a writer for Colbert, described the, uh, I, I recall, described the aesthetic of the Republican convention as being a cross between Triumph of the Will and QVC with a little bit of WWE thrown in. Uh, and I think that's that's about <laughs> right. It was sort of uh, Lenny Riefenstahl meets um, I don't know, meets like uh, meets the movie Joy. <laughs> yeah, meets Joy. So uh, for a good part of July, I was actually out of the country. I was teaching in Portugal. Uh, it's always interesting to follow an election season, to follow news of any kind when you're in a different country. The lighthearted side of this is that Portugal won a very important football match oh, in overtime. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, and the, and the country went wild. And for four days, we just watched replays in slow motion of the one goal in overtime. It was very exciting to be there, uh, to hear people screaming in the streets uh, all night long watching these replays and then to look at the New York Times, the newspaper of record, and see that the way they reported this triumph was a sad day for France. Mm. <laughs> uh, but the other thing that was going on while I was in Portugal, of course, was a great deal of um, uh, political unrest and, and racial tumult uh, in Baton Rouge and Minneapolis, uh, the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. movement. Right. And uh, a photograph that came out that's been widely distributed and discussed by photographers, by designers, by art historians, by journalists, because it represents a kind of in the most beautifully kind of poetic and dramatic way, uh, this standoff between the public and the police, between blacks and whites, between civilians and men in, in uh, officers' uniforms. Part of what makes uh, Black Lives Matter such a powerful movement, I think, is the fact that it is responding to the way that images arrive in our consciousness. And sometimes it happens in real time via things like Facebook Live, or it happens uh, through video that's taken at the scene. And so it's really an image-driven thing. And, you know, I mean, if you want to hear the most predictable of all responses, ask any African-American friend or person of color. Is this a new thing or is this just something that's been happening all along uh, that we haven't noticed before because of uh, social media and uh, the ability to record and disseminate images so quickly? And they'll always say it's the latter. This has been happening all along. We know it now because people have things like uh, handheld video and they can post things and circulate them really quickly. So images are really important. And I think the one you're describing, uh, which is a beautiful picture by a photographer named Jonathan Bachman uh, of a young woman facing off against a bunch of uh, police officers in riot gear. Uh, she's wearing a flowing dress standing, on, uh, standing in the middle of the street. And it's sort of approaching them. It is the most remarkable photograph. I mean, first of all, the, the photograph is almost split left and right because behind her there's nothing. And in front of her are these three men in this sort of strangely robotic positions. And behind them, this row of other guys. And these guys are dressed in, you know, some 
police version of a hazmat suit. I mean, it is just, they're just cloaked in an armor, in suits of armor. She is black, they are white. There are many of them, there one is one of her. And the look on her face, and she's, she was later identified as she's a 35-year-old nurse and mother from Brooklyn. This is the picture that has come to represent the Black Lives Matter movement, the same way the famous picture of Kent State yeah, 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 or yeah, yeah. Uh, Eddie, Eddie Adams' p- photograph in, in Vietnam. I mean, this has become sort of the moment of, of a generation. But it's marvelous to read what the, I mean, journalists have taken this apart, photographers have taken this apart. You know, I, I was finding myself thinking that, you know, Cartier-Bresson, the French photographer who was really sort of the first street photographer, one of the first street photographers, once said that it's an illusion that photos are made with a camera, they're made with the eye, the heart, and the head. And this is, of course, a moment in time. And, and when you, to your point, Michael, you look at the fact that everybody in the world takes a million pictures a day with their smartphone. And, and then you look at a photograph like this and you realize that not all photos are created equal. Uh, online, there's an analysis that a bunch of photo editors did talking about why this is such a strong picture. And it just comes down to like almost like these accidental things. On the pavement, there happens to be a crack that runs from the bottom of the frame all the way up to um, uh, the middle of the frame where her arm is sort of extended towards the police officers. That's a crack sort of dividing the image into... Oh, my God, that's so true. I haven't seen amazing. that. And then, and then uh, the designer, Max Berinsma, wrote this amazing piece where he compared it to uh, a bunch of paintings of the figure of Christ rising from the dead, which, again, Christ's grave was guarded by Roman soldiers. He rises out of the grave, and with the resurrection... The soldiers guarding him are sort of like taken aback and they're leaning away from the scene. And he actually makes a really good case that this image, you know, inadvertently and miraculously sort of has a lot of the uh, dynamics that religious imagery has. There's something about it just kind of remarkably powerful. And I think I agree with you. It's like when people look back at this moment, this may be one of the images they'll go to when they sort of say, this is the icon that represents what was happening in 2016 in the United States. But you know States. what, I'm th- as you're talking, you know what, it's making me, I think about the fact that the Trump-Pence logo is withdrawn. <laughs> I think about the fact that, yeah. no, I, I'm actually quite serious. I think that's withdrawn, yeah. right? And the Aisha Evans photograph mm-hmm, endures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you say, my God, in the, in the age of social media, for something to last more than 48 hours is a triumph of, of a different kind of will, right? But when you look at that photograph, it's classically composed. And you think about geometry and you think about sort of the, the, the gravity, and I don't mean gravity in terms of seriousness, I mean gravity in terms of compositional gravity. When something has an armature, when something has a grid, when something has a base, when something compositionally uses white space and uses the frame and actually beckons to a larger world order because of its ability to summon a compositional imperative that is geometrically based, that is about the fact that the photographer has an eye or the designer has an eye. I hate to say it in an age in which democracy and the sharing economy and transparency are what we're supposed to to be gunning for, but I think that there's something marvelous about that these things that have some sort of classic gesture in them are the things that maybe endure. I mean, it's again, it's too soon to say, but I think you know maybe history will prove that the, one of the wonderful things about this photograph is that, to, to, to quote Max Berinsma and, and his article, that it actually does gesture to some of these canonical works in ecclesiastical painting. It's a testimony to both immediacy, something that could only be happening right now, but also to everyone from Cartier-Bresson to 
you know, Renaissance painters. It sort of is a composition matters, uh, decisiveness matters, the decisive moment still means something. And I think that that's what you have in this image. And, and there's also something about the fact that um, what provokes so much of the passion in this movement is the outrage is sort of seeing someone being abused, someone suffering, someone being uh, the, the documented truth of seeing uh, uh, brutality happen before your eyes. What's in part so moving about this picture is that it actually is depicting a response to that. You know, it's depicting uh, strength in the face of challenge, of strength in the face of, uh, of potential brutality. It's photojournalism, but it's not, um, you know, it's not a designer sitting around trying to figure out how to combine a, a, a T and a P uh, to incite passion, intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, it's just a photographer, a camera, um, a, a, a thing unfolding right in real time before that photographer's eyes, and then a click of the shutter, and then an image is produced. It's, some, it's a miracle. It really is a it's miracle. It's a miracle. But, but you said something else, which is, and there's probably room for both, and there's room for this kind of artistry. But as we've also seen in, in the news in general, it, all of these recent you know, things that have happened uh, in Nice, this happened uh, in, at the Bataclan, Paris, it happened, and it happened again a few weeks ago. Uh, during one of the uh, Black Lives Matter incidents where somebody was actually shot in a car by a policeman and it was photographed, filmed, in fact, by someone in the car, the girlfriend of the, of the uh, victim, on her camera. So the idea that live streaming is something that is a citizen privilege it used to be a vigilanteism thing to do that, right? That you would get out there and you would, you would want to see justice done by any means and you decided that you were the person to, to, to make it happen. Well, the fact that anybody who has a smartphone is capable of as, uh, you know, creating something. They may not be creating it in the artistic sense that we're talking about the image of, of Aisha Evans, but they're, but they're creating something that becomes part of the public record. And so photography plays this role now, I think, civilian photography plays a role that, you know, cannot be underestimated. And, and uh, you know, I think it's, it's tricky. It's, it's very tricky. It gets into issues of free speech. It gets into issues of, of, of uh, what's appropriate. We've talked pr on previous episodes of the Observatory about what the media can and can't do. Is it appropriate to show photographs of someone, you know, falling out of a building when the Twin Towers are coming down? I mean, the, the, you get into issues of ethics and, and what the media's role is. But I think that when you're dealing with something that's so... Uh, incendiary as the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I think it's there's a lot more we're going to see before it's over. We live in an age of imagery. We live in an age of instantaneous communication. And I think that sometimes that can seem overwhelming and it runs counter to understanding things because one is so prone to be overwhelmed. But in some cases, like this one, it's clarifying and sort of seems to all of a sudden bring everything into focus, if only for a moment. <laughs> Support for the Observatory and Design Observer comes from AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. The mission of AIGA is to advance design as a professional craft, a strategic advantage, and a vital cultural force. For more than 100 years, generations of designers have come together to help each other, their clients, and their communities make an impact in the world. Join AIGA in Las Vegas this October 16th through 19th for their National Design Conference, where they will explore the changing shape of design with an amazing roster of designers. 
You can learn more and register at designconference.aiga.org. The only uh, president that has never been here was actually Richard Nixon. Uh, I, I really do not understand why. Turning to the happy, fun part of our show, was there something you read or saw this week you'd like to talk about? Well, um, Jessica, neither of us live in New York City. I live a little bit to the north in a suburb. You live uh, still further to the north in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, but in Manhattan, there's a uh, restaurant called the Four Seasons, uh, which sits on the uh, ground floor of Mies van der Rohe's Seagram Building. And the restaurant in the base of that building, designed by Mies van der Rohe with Philip Johnson uh, back in the 50s, is closing for renovation, changing ownership, and more or less becoming something that will no longer be the Four Seasons as it has been all along. Uh, I remember going there before seeing a show one time. I made someone take me to lunch there in payment for a freebie I did for them once. And then you and I actually had dinner there just a few weeks ago, just for we fun. Did. Remember? We did. After my book you came out. We had a book party in Manhattan, and then we all went down to the Four Seasons and had a lovely, lovely dinner. It is a beautiful, beautiful, like a staggeringly beautiful restaurant. The rooms are perfect. The furniture is perfect. The graphic design is perfect. So I had this idea the week that the Four Seasons was closing to convene a group of friends and meet for a drink at the bar uh, which has above it this beautiful bronze sculpture by Richard Lippold. It is a serene, beautiful place. I had that unique idea, and so seemingly did 200 other people. It was people were crowded around that bar as if it were, uh, you know, free beer night at Ebbets Field on, you know, <laughs> on a really hot day. You know, the smart people were ordering two drinks at a time, knowing that uh, uh, they might not be able to fight their way to the front of the bar again. It was anything but serene. But you really realize that this is what brings us together as human beings. Uh, the crowd, in fact, is creating for that one moment in time a center of one little bit of the universe, and you're right there in the middle of it. So I'm pleased to say that I uh, ordered multiple drinks, gave away many of them. Uh, some of them were actually given accidentally to other people at the bar, I believe, who I did not know. I managed to consume a few myself. And as we speak, uh, the entire thing is being uh, dismantled and sold at auction. Anything strike your fancy since we last spoke? Uh, my daughter actually sent me a link to a story that was in The Atlantic about ways of mapping the brain. There's a story about Paul Allen. Paul Allen, you might remember, is the co-founder of Microsoft. The Allen Institute for Brain Science has launched something called the Allen Brain Observatory, which is actually very visual. His observatory, which looks at brains, is really looking at the microcircuitry of the brain and how we can visualize the brain in action and how that visual information can be shared with researchers and others. So what do you think these super serious people studying the visual cortex, what do you think they did with the mice they're studying? They showed them an Orson Welles film. 
So there are these mice in Seattle watching Touch of Evil. There are these mice. They're the, they, I thought this was the greatest thing ever. Right? No, you're kidding. There are these mice in Seattle. I thought this oh, was the high point of my week, right? These mice in Seattle, who, and they're showing them films to understand what the mice like, what the mice don't like, where their eyes go. They chose it, and I quote, because it's black and white, has nice contrasts, <laughs> and contains a long, uninterrupted shot. So the oh, idea love that. isn't that great. So I just think if Orson Welles is turning in his grave right now, knowing that he is being used at this important observatory, not the Design Observer Observatory, but a much more important observatory that's looking at the visual cortex of brain mapping as befits the mouse and eventually befits all the rest of us. So. Sp- Speaking of uh, Orson Welles, um, one thing that caught my eye, and I think yours as well, was uh, an essay by a young man named Jarrett Fuller called A Rough Sketch for a Video Essay as Design Criticism. And in fact, uh, um, Fuller is inspired by an Orson Welles film called F for Fake. And uh, he sees that as a model of a uh, kind of visual uh, film or video essay that actually has all sorts of potential as a way of talking about design, of criticizing design, and I think makes a really, really brilliant case for it in the form of a video he's done. And, and Jared Fuller is, I should point out, a student at uh, the uh, uh, Maryland Institute of College of Art and is... Right, he's, a, he's an MFA student. MFA student. And, 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 he, and, he's put, and, this, and this, I think uh, it's fair to say this is part of the research for his thesis. And it just seemed both surprising and provocative and sort of surprisingly inevitable to me. Like, why haven't we seen design addressed in the form of video essays before regularly? Certainly there are some films about design. There's uh, everything from... uh, uh, Helvetica and the other films that Gary Hustwood has made. But this is something different. He's really, he's looking, he traces it back to the Eames, to their rough sketch for a sample lesson for a hypothetical course. He manages to pay homage to and reference these earlier examples of film in the service of education and criticism, but he doesn't do it in a pandering way. He doesn't do it in a hackneyed way. It's quite original, and, and he has this sort of very eloquent uh, I think quite intelligent way of making sense of what was and what is and what can be and, and uses video in a very compelling way. Uh, Jared Fuller appears to be inspired by this uh, uh, remarkable series of videos done by a uh, really smart guy named Tony Zhu called Every Frame a Painting. These are analyses of popular and historic films that are really done by juxtaposing everything from editing styles to film and acting. Uh, And I think it just is done with such skill and intelligence. And one of the things that's really great about the medium of video is that it permits you to kind of range across all these references and you're able to kind of come up with the perfect sort of uh, visual support for the point you're making. And if you do it in the right way, it really is amazingly effective. And I think uh, every frame of painting sort of demonstrate that for film. And I think that there's a lot of room for doing it in terms of design. 
They share Jarrett Fuller and Tony Zhu. They're beautifully, meticulously edited, both of these things. Obviously, Tony Zhu is an editor, but, but Fuller's, I think, takes his cue in terms of an extremely delicately handled and clean and simple, uh, not overreaching, very intelligently worded. The language is very clean. There's nothing pompous about it. There's nothing egocentric about it. Uh, he, he, he's able to sort of draw these distinctions and these comparisons and bring everything back at the end and everything is sort of nicely tied up. But the thing I wanted to say about Tony Zhu that I find really fascinating is that we talk a lot as designers about thinking through making. You shouldn't have a preconceived idea before you make something that sometimes it's in the sketching and in the working out physically and formally that we, we come up with better ideas and we see what works and doesn't work. You could almost imagine as he's doing one, he's thinking about the next one he's going to do, but that it's not until he actually, because what he's doing is he's pulling together these examples of, of famous other films that he's learned from. You get the sense that even though he's a working editor, he's young and he's still learning and he's sharing with you the trajectory of, of the trial and error. I think we live in an age where video is so polished and we go to see blockbuster movies and everything's in 3D and now we're waiting for augmented reality to hit next. And so to see these things that are just being by these really thoughtful, intelligent people, I, I just, I think that, that we, the world needs a lot more people like Jared Fuller and, uh, and Tony Zhu. There's something about the way that video and, you know, motion graphics can be manipulated so easily now, so with such fluidity. I think that the Eames's films are extraordinary, but if you see something like Powers of Ten, you're hyper-conscious of the planning and the storyboarding and the precision of what it took to kind of put that together. It's fantastic, but I think it's, uh, it's an artifact of what medium the Eames were working with. Analog film, hand editing, storyboarding, everything done really carefully. People like uh, Tony Zhu and uh, people working in his wake like Jared Fuller are able to just use that medium with such ease, I think, that they can really give it a kind of improvisatory uh, feel, which I think is really, really exciting and really interesting and surprisingly unexplored, really, at this moment in time. And I think it offers a real doorway to future scholars, future students, future thinkers about design to really make points about the subjects that we've been trying to solve through words and through static pictures for years. And I think uh, uh, um, uh, video motion graphics offers an entirely new way of looking at these things. And it's a, and it also a totally different kind of use of the mind. I mean, like the editorial use of the mind to actually understand how to put together not only your own work, but to composite it together with other people's work and make an assessment about where that's going. I, for people who feel disillusioned by doing the kind of fine-tuning of pixels that UX and UI and screen-based things demand, I think there's hope for you. There's hope for us all. It's a very different use of a designer's capabilities. And I, I think that smart, young, video-savvy people out there are going to see this work and realize that the sky's the limit. It's just We're just getting started. It's very exciting work. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to the things we discussed, including Jarrett Fuller's and a rough sketch for a video essay as design criticism. 
If you like what you heard today, please tell your friends about the observatory or go to iTunes and rate us or leave a review. It really helps. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to the observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters, with Debbie Millman. Thanks to AIGA for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.